Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Great to be with you live again, or whenever you happen to be listening to the podcast. Uh, well, we just uh, passed yet another Independence Day, and uh, uh, Catholic Americans had special cause for rejoicing this July 4 because of the overturning of Roe v. Wade. But uh, as always, there are some Catholics, uh, for example, on the far right, who are convinced that the United States, being the result of the uh, philosophy of the Enlightenment, really should not be celebrated at all, while their counterparts on the far left feel just as strongly that uh, the United States should not be celebrated just you know because they hate Western civilization as a manifestation of white supremacist patriarchy. So, uh, so later on, we're going to talk about the virtue of piety uh, as the source of true patriotism, versus its opposing vices of treachery on the one hand and nationalism on the other, which is a kind of counterfeit patriotism. Also, I'm going to give oh, kind of my initial reaction to yet another encyclical from uh, Pope Francis's Vatican, Desiderio Desideravi, kind of an anti-traditional liturgical document, as well as uh, we're going to look at some reasons, 10 reasons, in fact, if we have time, that you should attend the traditional Latin Mass if you are able. But first, as always, going to start the program with a reading from the Holy Gospel, this uh, from the um, last Sunday's Mass in the ordinary form, being the 14th Sunday of Ordinary Time, and the Gospel's taken from Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, and verses 17 through 20. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him in pairs to every town and place he intended to visit. He said to them, The harvest is abundant, but the laborers are few. Therefore ask the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers for his harvest. Go on your way. Behold, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Carry no money bag or sack and wear no sandals. Greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, let your first words be, Peace to this house. If a man of peace lives there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house and eat and drink whatever is offered to you, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and its people welcome you, eat whatever is set before you. Cure the sick who are there and say, the kingdom of God has come upon you. But whenever you enter a town and the people do not welcome you, go out into the streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to us, we wipe off our feet as a sign against you. Yet know this, the kingdom of God is at hand. I tell you, on that day it will be more bearable for Sodom than for that town. The 72 returned rejoicing, and they said, Lord, in your name, even the demons are subject to us. He said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you the power to tread upon snakes and scorpions and all the forces of the enemy, and nothing will ever harm you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in the knowledge that the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice rather that your names are inscribed in heaven. Thus far, the words of the Holy Gospel. <clears throat> now, the 72, we think, I think we tend to think 
of Jesus' followers in terms of the Twelve Apostles. But there were far more than twelve people following Jesus, both men and women. And, and here, Jesus designates a group of 72 men to prepare a number of towns that he plans to visit. And the number of disciples sent on this mission suggests universality. We know that numbers have meaning in the scriptures. Um, the ancient leaders of Israel traditionally numbered 72. Genesis chapter 10 lists 72 pagan nations. Uh, even in Jesus' own day, the Sanhedrin, uh, the members of the Sanhedrin numbered 72. So it's also interesting to note that, that these 72 disciples were not unique in their qualifications. Like the 12 apostles, they, they weren't better educated, they weren't more capable, or they didn't have a higher social standing than the other followers of our Lord. What prepared them for this mission was, number one, that they had been equipped with power by Jesus. They were equipped with Jesus' power. And number two, they had this vision to reach all people. So this applies also to us today. Um, you know, it, it's important to dedicate our skills to furthering the kingdom of God, but we have to be equipped with his power, with his grace, and, and have a clear vision of what it is that he wants us to do. As uh, Thomas Akempis says in the imitation, God is the God of peace, not a God of confusion. So we need to, need to know what he's asking of us. So Jesus is, is sending out the 72, that's 36 teams of two, uh, and he sent them out to reach the multitudes and, and prepare them for his preaching. But they weren't to try and do that job all by themselves. You know, uh, the first thing he says is to ask God for more workers. The harvest is abundant, but the laborers are few. He says, therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send laborers. Some people, as, as soon as they hear the good news, they, <clears throat> they're very enthusiastic. They want to go out and start just sharing it or evangelizing it you know, immediately, share it with everybody they meet. And that's a good thing. But Jesus recommends a, a slightly different approach, which is that he says we should begin by mobilizing people to pray. Right? And before you start evangelizing the unbaptized, you pray that, that you're going to be joined by other disciples who are going to help you to reach out to them. You know, most parishes have some kind of evangelization committee, or maybe they have uh, um, inquiry classes for those who are interested in maybe becoming Catholic, right? There's a good chance your own parish has like-minded people. I mean, if evangelization is your thing, uh, there are people with whom you can join your missionary efforts. Certainly, supporting an apostle like this doesn't hurt, uh, because we have a, a certain reach, you know, through, through this uh, media. In any case, when it comes to serving Christ in his church, there isn't any unemployment. Okay, God has plenty of work for everybody to do. Jesus' words, the harvest indeed is great, yet the laborers are few. That's just as true today as it was 2,000 years ago. So we shouldn't just sit back and watch others work, uh, but rather look for ways uh, that we can help with the harvest. Uh, in verse 3, Jesus tells the disciples he's sending them out as lambs among wolves, and <clears throat> that they would have to be prudent because they were surely going to meet with opposition. And uh, once again, the same is true with us today. We too are sent into the world like lambs among wolves, and it's a dangerous mission, potentially, and it requires commitment. So it's important for us to be awake and alert and to remember to face our enemies, not with aggression, but with love and with gentleness. Like St. Peter said, 
Revere Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always be prepared to offer an explanation to anyone who asks you to justify the hope that is in you. However, do so with gentleness and respect. An example of this uh, prudence in our reading today from chapter or uh, verse 7, rather, is to stay in one household, right? Because the disciples shifting from one house to another might offend the families who, you know, first took them in, uh, or the families might start to compete for uh, the presence of the apostles or disciples. And some, some might think that, oh, they don't stay at my house, so I must not be good enough to hear their message, and so on. And, and if they appear not to appreciate the hospitality originally offered to them, the town might not accept Jesus when he followed them there. And also by staying in one place, the disciples, you know, they're not going to have to worry constantly about where they're going to stay and what they're going to wear and all that, like in the Sermon on the Mount, <clears throat> but they're going to be able to concentrate on their appointed task. So also in verse 7, Jesus tells the apostles to accept hospitality graciously, uh, first off, because their works entitles them to it. Ministers of the gospel deserve to be supported. It's our responsibility to make sure that they have what they need. Hence the fifth precept of the church traditionally, uh, well, the fifth precept of the church is you shall help provide for the needs of the church. But originally it was you shall help support your parish priest. Because, you know, back in the days before dioceses were run like uh, corporations and priests were paid salaries and provided with automobiles and so forth, it was customary for for people to to support them, to pay for their groceries, to prepare meals and so forth. Um, in any event, there are ways and ways when it comes to supporting those who serve God in his church, including to see that they are supported uh, emotionally, especially to let them know that their ministry is appreciated. It can be a, a lonely and unrewarding work to do, uh, you know, to be a priest or a deacon or to do apostolic work of any kind. Even doing little things to encourage them, help lift their spirits from time to time. That's something that, that any of us can do. Uh, in verses 8 and 9, Jesus gives two rules for the disciples to follow as they travel, to eat what was set before them, right, accept hospitality, and to heal the sick. Because of the healings, people would be willing to listen to the good news. And this has always been a crucial part of the church's missionary activity, to meet people's needs, their temporal needs, as well as share the good news. The works of charity, right, the, the corporal works of mercy have always accompanied the proclamation of the gospel. Now, in verses 10 and 12, our Lord says, <clears throat> Whenever you enter a town and the people do not welcome you, go out into the streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to us, we will wipe off our feet as a sign against you. Know this, the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he adds, I tell you, on that day it will be more bearable for Sodom than for that town. Now what that means, and, and the rest of our gospel, we'll get to on the other side. I can hear the music, and I uh, uh, just want to say thank you for listening. We'll be right back with lots more uh, no-nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. So stick with us, and don't touch that dial.
Welcome back, No Nonsense Catholic. We're talking about uh, the gospel from last Sunday's uh, Ordinary Form Mass and um, Jesus sending out the 72 disciples to prepare the way for him. And he says that um, if any town won't accept them, that they need to, to proclaim that they're wiping the dust off their feet. And he says that that day, when the, when the kingdom of God is at hand, he said when the day of the Lord comes, uh, it will be more bearable for Sodom than for that town. Of course, we know that Sodom was an evil city. Back in the book of Genesis, it was, the whole city was destroyed because of its sinfulness. Uh, in fact, there's a particular sin that bears the name of that city. We call it sodomy, right? Uh, and and the, the name Sodom is used to symbolize wickedness and immorality. And so the, the Sodom, right, the inhabitants of Sodom will certainly suffer come Judgment Day. But he says that cities that actually had the opportunity to see the Messiah in the flesh and rejected him, they will suffer even more. Perhaps especially when they fully understand the opportunity that they wasted. All right, the final part of the gospel then jumps uh, from verse 12 to verse 17 when the disciples return. He said the disciples had seen tremendous results uh, when they ministered in his name with his authority. They were elated by the victories they'd witnessed. They, and Jesus, you know, you, when you read it, he shared their joy. He was enthusiastic, or they, you know, he, he uh, was, was happy with their enthusiasm. But he said, um, you know, even though you're, you're thrilled that you have power over evil spirits, got to get your priorities right. And he reminded them that their most important victory is that their names were inscribed in heaven, which is to say that their names were written in the heavenly book of life, that the honor of heavenly sonship in the family of God is more important than any of their missionary accomplishments. Like Mother Teresa, I think she was actually quoting Francis of Assisi, but uh, popularly we attribute it to Mother Teresa that she said that God you know, requires faithfulness, not success. You know, the important thing is, is that we remain faithful to God, that we have our names written in the book of life. And the thing is, as we see and we do see wonders at work through us in our own lives, okay, including uh, victory over evil spirits, as our Lord refers to as uh, snakes and scorpions, we shouldn't lose sight of the greatest wonder of all, which is our heavenly election, which should give us a happiness that surpasses, radically surpasses, even our missionary successes. <clears throat> okay, you know what? I just wanted to mention this. I was going to mention it at the top of the show, and I'm going to do it now. Um, my daughter, Emily, uh, had to go to the hospital a couple weeks, 10 days ago, whatever it was, with abdominal pain, uh, and they discovered what the issue was. But in the process, they also discovered that she has uh, you know, thyroid masses, she's got tumors, a tumor in her chest. And, uh, of course, they need to biopsy it to find out if it's malignant. And normally they would do that with a needle, unfortunately, because of its proximity to a major nerve and a major artery. Uh, they're going to have to do it surgically. And so uh, I would want you to ask in, in, your, uh, in your generosity if you would offer a prayer for my daughter Emily and for our family. <clears throat> also, you may have noticed that my voice is still not up to par I've been suffering from the symptoms of laryngitis uh, for about six weeks now. Now, laryngitis lasts typically seven or ten days. And so I've been to the doctor, and uh, they, they're going to send me to a specialist 
because they suspect that I have the singer's bane, which is uh, vocal nodules, kind of like a callus that forms on your vocal cords and keeps them from working properly. <clears throat> and um, as a result, you know, uh, for somebody who's made his, you know, living with his voice for 40 years, this is not good news. So please pray for my daughter, Emily. And if you can spare it, uh, offer one for my voice as well. Hopefully you'll get out of the woods on this. <clears throat> okay. Anthony Eslin, one of my favorite contemporary Catholic essayists. He's a professor of English literature and a, and a Catholic. And he has a new subscription service called Word and Song. And uh, he sends out a regular commentary every week. There's a word of the week and a, a hymn of the week and a poem of the week, that kind of thing. It's just wonderful. Um, people that love language and, and uh, that sort of thing. I, I just love it. Anyway, in honor of the 4th of July, the, the last hymn of the week was the song America, well, possibly better known as My Country Tis of Thee, right? Uh, the melody was actually taken from God Save the King, which was a British hymn, and renamed America. And the lyrics were written by a seminarian named Samuel Francis Smith back in 1831, and it, it, the, the lyrics really constitute a hymn. And the first verse, or stanza, if you want to use poetic terms, Includes the words, land where my fathers died. You know, reminds us of the sacrifices that were made to establish this land so that freedom can ring from every mountainside, right? Like it says in the song. Um, and Eslin says the, the second stanza, though, brings that ringing joy nearer to home, making it more intimate, quiet, and holy. Um, he says it isn't just Pike's Peak and the Mississippi River that moves us, but uh, the, the stanza says, I love thy rocks and rills, thy woods and templed hills. A rill, by the way, is a, a small stream. So not just the misses, you know, not just these these mighty wonders of nature, but, you know, the, the topography in your own uh, local area. You know, and it, it, it's like our relationship with the Heavenly Father that we recognize and appreciate in our earthly homeland, both the awesome and the intimate. But uh, really, it's the final verse that brings home the virtue of patriotism. And it's, Our Father's God to thee, author of liberty, to thee we sing. Author, okay? It's important, that word, I will talk about it in a minute. Um, Long may our land be bright with freedom's holy light. Protect us by thy might, great God our King. That song America ends with the words, Great God, Our King. And so I'm just going to tell you what Anthony Eslin said. The God of our fathers is the author of liberty. Smith is using his words precisely. Okay, And it is, author is the root word of authority. Authority comes from God because he is the author of everything. So the author gives increase because he has the authority to do so. And the liberty that God gives is authentic and not mere license, which enslaves. Since we want to be free, we beg our freedom from him alone who can set us free, raising us up to what St. Paul calls the glorious liberty of the children of God. The last line clinches it all. We make the identification that the hymn has been leading up to, Great God, our King. See, what separated the founding of the American Republic from uh, the reign of terror in France, for example, um, is precisely that we, as a people, did not reject God. 
Esalen says, we Americans do not need an earthly king because we acknowledge our heavenly king. And I, I love that he puts that in the present tense. It was certainly true in the past uh, and still amongst uh, at least some of our citizens. America, he says, is meant to herald a purer way of life, a more genuine liberty than men have ever known uh, before because we derive our liberty from God. You see how authentic American patriotism then has nothing to do with so-called freedom from religion. I went to elementary school back in the 1960s. Okay, so I'm showing my age here. And, and although prayer had been forbidden in public schools since 1962, we still began every day at public school with the Pledge of Allegiance, followed by singing a patriotic song. And I can tell you that My Country Tis of Thee was one of my favorites. And, and I remember as a boy watching a rerun of The Lone Ranger uh, from the final season. And the final season of The Lone Ranger TV show was actually shot in color. Uh, even though it was back in 1957, hardly anybody had a color DV set, but they were looking ahead, I guess. Um, and it was shot primarily on location in Arizona. And this episode opened with the Lone Ranger and Tonto riding through this majestic scenery of the Arizona desert. And, and <clears throat> the ranger remarks the, how beautiful the country is. He says, it makes me appreciate the words of the poet. I love thy rocks and rills, thy woods and templed hills. Now, that episode was, he, he doesn't give a reference, by the way, as to what, what that comes from. And, and this uh, episode was produced in 1957. And the writer in 1957 could assume that the elementary school-aged children who comprised the audience of the program would recognize that reference, as I did even 10 years later in 1967. Kids today, I suspect, not so much. And uh, a big reason is because our culture has actually lost the virtue of patriotism. Okay, and what is, what is the virtue of patriotism? Um, patriotism is appropriate devotion to your country. And by the way, we're going to be talking a little philosophy here. And um, I'm basing these remarks largely on a book called The One Minute Philosopher, by Dr. Montague Brown. It was published by Sophia Press. If you don't have a copy of that, get one. You will, you will appreciate it because the whole book is set up with uh, opposing pages, uh, making uh, important philosophical distinctions between terms that are often conflated or, or concepts that are often conflated. It's important to know the difference between liberty and license or between faith and gullibility or between uh, uh, <clears throat> chastity and, and, and prudery. There are, these are, these distinctions are important. Words uh, have meaning. Things matter. <clears throat> but only if you know, right? Charlemagne used to say um, during what they call it the Carolingian Renaissance in the, back in the, whatever, the 8th, 9th century. And um, 9th century, I'd say. Anyway, uh, Charlemagne said right action is import, more important than knowledge. But in order to do what's right, you have to know what's right. Okay, so um, patriotism is appropriate devotion to your country. It falls under the moral virtue of piety, which falls under the cardinal virtue, virtue of justice, which is to give to each what he is due. So, you know, to honor your country is akin to the fourth commandment, to honor your father and mother. But patriotism is not a blind love of country. It involves an appreciation, a gratitude for what our country has done for us, 
but also a realistic evaluation of the justice of that country's policies. Right? One of the rules of chivalries was to love the country of your birth. In other words, you owe your country a certain degree of loyalty precisely because it is your country. You know, just as I should be loyal to my family or my community. You know, remember the old Beach Boys song, Be True to Your School. But I should balance this with the realization that other people have a like loyalty to their country and their family and their school and so on. Since we've all benefited from these institutions, we have an obligation in justice to respect and to protect them. But this loyalty shouldn't blind us to the defects in our institutions, nor does it absolve us from our obligation to correct them. The ancient Romans thought that to die for your country was the most noblest thing that a man could do. In the 20th century, patriotism, uh, you know, helped defeat Nazi and and totalitarianism, right? Hitler. Uh, If men like my father had not been willing to fight for our country, the world would have been a very different place. Okay, more on this and, and the two extremes that go against the virtue of justice when we return with more No-Nonsense Catholic. All right, we've been talking about the virtue of patriotism. And like all virtues, uh, the virtue lies uh, on the mean between two extremes. Uh, what we call the sin of defect on one extreme and the sin of excess on the other. So if patriotism is in the center, then the sin of defect would be treachery, right? To be a traitor and and betray your country. I will refrain from giving any uh, contemporary examples. Uh, On the other extreme is the sin of excess. So in the case of patriotism, that sin of excess is what we call nationalism. See, unlike patriotism, nationalism is an irrational devotion to country. It's a blind love of country. Uh, Like patriotism, it may involve appreciating the good that the country's done for us, but it doesn't include an evaluation of the justice of its policies. So the, the nationalist overplays his loyalty for his country and fails to keep in mind that other people have loyalties to their countries legitimately. Uh, you know, um, to be loyal to your country is good, but it's indefensible to think that your country is better than everybody else's just because it's yours. Uh, the nationalist then ignores the obligation to evaluate the, evaluate the defects of his country. And rather than work to correct them and make the country better, he simply declares it to be the best. And again, the 20th century is full of examples of the dangers of nationalism. Prime example, of course, is Hitler and Nazi Germany. Unchecked nationalism led to the atrocities of the Holocaust and the attempt to, to subjugate Europe to German rule. The Japanese were, were similarly national, uh, nationalistic in their uh, <clears throat> attempt to dominate the East. You know, um, ditto with, uh, with uh, communism. Uh, more recently, Saddam Hussein encouraged nationalism in his, uh, when he was the leader of Iraq in order to justify his own lust for power. You know, he even in, invaded his, his neighbor, Kuwait, for example. Um, and ostensibly uh, uh, a Muslim, right, he claims to be a Muslim and therefore uh, 
religiously in iconoclast. He didn't have any pictures of Muhammad hanging on the wall in his office, but he did have portraits of two people, Hitler and Stalin, whom he uh, identified as his personal heroes. So if you love your country just because it's yours and are indifferent to its defects, your devotion is not patriotism, but nationalism. So, in a word, patriotism is an appropriate love of your country, and nationalism is a fanatical support of one's country, even when the country's wrong. Uh, in the words of Charles de Gaulle, patriotism is when love of your own people comes first. Nationalism, when hate for other people, people other than your own, comes first. And that is the difference, and that is no nonsense. Okay, on to other things. Uh, I don't know how much time I want to spend on this. The, the Congregation for the Doctrine of Worship and the Sacraments has issued a document called Desiderio Desideravi from the Latin of Luke twenty two fifteen, And he said to them, with desire, I have desired to eat this Pasch with you before I suffer. Right, talking to the apostles before the Last Supper where he instituted the Most Holy Eucharist. Most modern translations, by the way, would say, I have eagerly desired, I have greatly desired. But in the ancient world, emphasis was shown by repetition. Amen, amen, I say to you, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, etc. <clears throat> Hence, Desiderio Desideravi, with desire I have desired. Now, according to Pope Francis, this document hopes to, quote, overcome polemics about the liturgy to rediscover its beauty. Now, I guess he's should be figuring out that using the stick isn't working very well, so he's trying to use the carrot here. And, and I'll tell you right now, overcoming the polemics about the liturgy is a consummation devoutly to be wished. I don't think that this document is going to uh, necessarily help promote that. Um, and I don't have time to make a full commentary. I haven't studied it enough. Um, and uh, uh, suffice it to say, it, it seems to be inconsistent. Much of it is eloquently written, um, and, and very consistent with the way a devout Catholic should regard the liturgy. Uh, and, and while there's no direct criticism of the Novus Ordo Mass, parts of it are critical of you know, the typical way that the Novus Ordo is celebrated. And, and that's welcome, but it's not unheard of. I mean, it's not the first time a pope has, has complained about the abuse of the Novus Ordo. And, uh, and most Catholics I know who assist regularly at their traditional Mass do not do so because they have any animus towards Vatican II or, or, or the Novus Ordo Missae proper, but, but precisely the ongoing and unchecked abuse of the new liturgy. So this document um, at times laments that situation, but it doesn't offer any kind of answer. There's no concrete solutions there. Uh, but even in that, it's, it's inconsistent. Um, there was an anonymous post on Facebook, or somebody shared on Facebook, said, I find Desiderio Desideravi to be a mishmash of classical liturgical movement things, some modern mumbo-jumbo, an occasional flash of insight, and various meanderings that could have been penned in 1968. It is an infelicitous work of many hands, some of them clumsy and others innocuous, that is, dangerous or harmful. Uh, and the Pope undoubtedly added his graceless touches, too. That's an opinion. That's not my words. It's the guy from Facebook. Uh, but I could definitely see Cardinal Seurat as having drafted some original content long ago, content that was then put through a blender, he says. Well, it actually turns out that this anonymous poster was on to something because subsequently the Congregation from, for Divine Worship made this statement. It said, 
that uh, it is a document that brings together and reworks in an original way, in an original way, the propositions that resulted from the plenary session of the Congregation for Divine Worship and the Disciplines of the Sacraments in February 2019 on the same theme. Okay, what does that mean? Well, apparently, the, the Congregation for Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments had a plenary session, and then, in accord with the way those things are run, after they made their decisions and did their voting, Cardinal Seurat summarized it in a document, All right, being the prefect of the congregation. But apparently, the Vatican postponed the publication uh, of this document, uh, of the actual propositions that, that were you know, presented by the Congregation for the Doctrine of Worship until they could... Um, install Cardinal Roach in uh, Seurat's place so that he could then, and I quote, adjust the results of the plenary in an original way, which is as nice a piece of Orwellian doublespeak as I have ever seen. In other words, um, the Pope or, or powers that be at the Vatican didn't like what the congregation under Seurat actually proposed, so he put his own man in charge to to change the propositions to something more uh, in line with his own views, which, of course, include his ongoing war against the traditional Latin Mass. <clears throat> Pardon me, I'm sorry, this um, uh, thing with my voice is uh, really kicking in here. Hang on. Those of you watching on Rumble just saw me take a swig out of a flask. I assure you it is for medicinal purposes only. Okay, um... Okay, that, uh, th- th- those remarks, though, there's a, and, and what I just said, that's only one man's opinion. And, and enough of this document does remain intact for it to be of some use. But, you know, like I already said, it, it laments the sad situation of the Novus Ordo liturgy, but it doesn't offer any solutions. Uh, and it flatly removes the traditional Latin Mass from any consideration. Uh, and that, I assume, is part of the, um, you know, uh, part of the plenary's, you know, uh, I should rather say that it was not part of the plenary's actual propositions, which were, you know, voted on and, and summarized by Cardinal Seurat. Uh, in fact, any support for the traditional mass, I suspect, is but needed to be adjusted in an original way, quote-unquote. Uh, but according to the Catholic News Service, Desiderio Desideravi is not a new instruction or a directive with specific norms, but rather a meditation on understanding the beauty of liturgical celebration and its role in evangelization. And I suspect that uh, Mr. Michael Hitchborn summarized the feelings of many Catholics when he posted this response on Facebook. Good, he said, 65 paragraphs I am free to ignore. <laughs> you know, unfortunately, like I say, it, it, this document doubles down on embracing the hermeneutic of rupture by insisting that the Novus Ordo Missae is the quote-unquote unique expression of the Church's Lex Orandi or law of prayer. But, you know, that word, words have meanings. The word unique, it means only. It means there is no other law of prayer in the church. And and that means, that, you know, I mean, or, or what this means, rather, for the Eastern rites or the rites of various religious orders or the Anglican ordinariate or whatever, is not addressed. The Pope himself has celebrated the so-called Zairean rite or Zairean rite uh, for the Congolese Catholics in Rome. Um which, uh, you know, he says it, it is until now the only enculturated rite of the Latin Church approved after the Second Vatican Council. Uh, and and this, this 
Zairean liturgy, as you might expect, has many peculiar features that are not prescribed in the general instruction of the Roman Missal for the Novus Ordo. And Pope Francis says that he considers this Congolese Mass um, uh, a model for, for an upcoming new Amazonian rite. Okay? So how this squares with his insistence that, that the, the Novus Ordo is the only authentic expression of the Church's prayer is anybody's guess. Uh, once again, I, I've obviously been on Facebook too much in the last few days, but Naresh Krishnamurti put it this way. He said, the Pope has a simple rule, any right less dignified than the Novus Ordo is freely permitted, any right more dignified is not. And uh, that's an oversimplification, but, you know, all kidding aside, words have meaning. The axiom is lex orandi, lex credendi, the law of prayer is the law of belief. So simply put, the faithful are called upon to make a permanent commitment of obedience to the truth. Therefore, the truth to which they commit their obedience must be permanent. So logically speaking, if the new Mass is the unique expression, that is the only, one and only true expression of the Church's law of prayer, distinct from the traditional Latin Mass, then it follows that the law of belief that's expressed by the Novus Ordo is something other than the law of belief uh, as it existed before 1965. That is to say that the, the Catholic faith is now something other than it was for the previous 19th centuries. And that's nonsense. That's absolute nonsense. It's absurd to expect any Catholic to embrace such a flagrant contradiction. And, and especially considering the many liturgical changes that occurred after the Council that were precisely based on disobedience. Community in the hand, and extraordinary ministers, and, and altar girls at all. All right. I'm going to talk a little bit more about this on the other side and then 10 reasons why you should attend the traditional Latin Mass. All that and more when we return with lots more no-nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin's most powerful radio. Okay, welcome back. <laughs> to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, and things have really gotten away from me. I didn't realize this is the final segment, and I have many, many pages of stuff that we're never, ever going to get to. I just wanted to, uh, to finish up on today's uh, talk about this encyclical, Desiderio Desideravi. Um, you know that unlike this, you know, reflection that has been published, we've had actual instructions. Like in 2004, the instruction Redemptionis Sacramentum uh, from the Congregation of Divine Worship and the Sacraments. It was then promulgated as an encyclical by John Paul II, and it was a directive with specific norms, quote-unquote, uh, and it addressed many of the most egregious of the Novus Ordo liturgical abuses and called for their immediate correction. And I'm sorry to say all those abuses continue to be on open display on any given Sunday in parishes around the country and I expect around the world. So no serious effort of any kind was ever made to implement the ex, you know, explicit directives of the Congregation of Divine Worship um, and promulgated not as a mere reflection, but as an instruction and an encyclical by a now canonized saint Pope, John Paul II. So, I mean, does Pope Francis really expect that uh, bishops and priests all, all over the world is going to roll over on his kind of unprecedented liturgical musings when as a bishop he himself felt free to ignore explicit directives of the Holy See? Right? 
I, I think not. You know, wh- one of the things that, um, you know, Traditionis Custodes and, and the subsequent acts of Pope Francis to try and discredit the traditional Mass, and not just the Mass, but the faithful Catholics who attend it, all he's managed to accomplish is to, to drive, you know, the numbers of Catholics attending the traditional Mass through the roof. And as I mentioned, you know, I mentioned this last week and a thousand times before, traditional Catholics are the only sector of the church that's growing instead of shrinking. And so, you know, doubling down on policies that drove thousands of faithful conservative Catholics, you know, conservative noble ordo Catholics that drove them to the traditional mass, you know, uh, in the first place is probably not going to be the most effective strategy for eliminating the traditional mass. Just saying. And nobody asked me, but I'm just saying. Okay. Oh, boy, there's a lot more I could say about that. But <clears throat> I, I promised that we were going to go to uh, the reasons why you should attend the traditional Latin Mass, even if it's only once. Because I can tell you, I've been around the world, uh, the Anglophone world, not only North America, USA, Canada, but uh, you know, in Australia and, uh, and in uh, England. Um, and I've seen those parishes where they have both forms of the Mass, both the, the, the traditional Mass and the new Mass, that they have benefited from existing, you know, coexisting in the same parish. Like Benedict XVI said that there would be mutual enrichment, and he's right, because what we see in the, the Novus Ordo Masses is a greater reverence, the very thing that the, the Pope is calling for now, you know, a more, a more reverent and, and uh, uh, a conscious celebration of the new Mass, but also the active participation in the old Mass that I believe Vatican II was calling for in the first place. It's odd to think that, that it's precisely within the traditional movement that many of the goals of the Vatican's Council, Second Vatican Council, are actually being accomplished, and not so much, uh, you know, in the Novus Ordo milieu. All right. Uh, back in 2017, Dr. Peter Kwasniewski wrote an article, 10 Reasons Why You Should ascend, Attend the Traditional Mass, and I'll put a link to it in the uh, show notes when the, the show goes up on the website, so you can read it for yourself. But I just want to kind of hit the highlights here of uh, 10 reasons to attend the traditional Mass. Um, number one, you will be formed in the same way that the saints were formed. You know, uh, John Paul II actually canonized more saints than any pope previous. And uh, Pope Francis has actually canonized twice as many because he canonized a, a group of martyrs, or several hundred martyrs, all at the same time. But prior to that, you know, from the time of the canonization process, there were only a few hundred saints that had gone through the, the actual process of canonization. In the early church, it was more of a, you know, a, a local phenomenon that then eventually kind of organically spread. <clears throat> but, you know, if we take a conservative estimate, and you, you figure that the Mass was— uh, the Roman Mass was codified uh, during the reign of Gregory the Great, so circa 600. Lasted until 1970, so 1,400 years in the life of the Church. That is the history of the vast majority of her saints. The prayers, the readings, the chants that they heard and meditated on are the same ones that you will hear at the traditional Mass. Right, this is the Mass that was inherited, like I said, by Gregory the Great. The Mass celebrated by Thomas Aquinas, and, and for which he wrote... The, the, the propers and, and the office for the Feast of Corpus Christi. Right? The words of the prayers written by Thomas Aquinas you're going to get. Uh, this is the Mass that, that 
the Crusader king, Louis IX, assisted at three times a day. The Mass was first celebrated on, on the shores of this country by the Spanish and, and French missionaries. The Mass that had to be celebrated secretly and at great danger in England and Ireland during the days of persecution. So the Mass that Blessed Miguel Pro risked his life to celebrate before he was martyred by the Mexican government. It's the Mass that converted uh, uh, John Henry Newman. This is the Mass that Father Frederick Faber called the most beautiful thing this side of heaven. Right, so that's the first thing. It's, you're going to be formed in the way that the saints were formed in the traditional Catholic faith. Number two, what's true for you is more true for your children. You know, the traditional Mass deeply forms the minds and hearts of children who attend regularly in the reverence for God, in the virtues of humility and obedience and and adoration, especially in silence. It fills the senses and the imagination with sacred signs and symbols, what the Council of Trent called mystic ceremonies. And I'll tell you, it was precisely for the faith of my children that I took my family outside the diocesan structure for a time when there was no other traditional Latin Mass available. And trust me, Pope Francis, if you continue to shut Masses down, that's precisely what's going to happen again. Number three is... Uh, the universality of the traditional Mass you know, provides this, this visible, tangible, unbroken link from today you know, all the way to hundreds of years in the past. And it is an inspiring bond of unity, not only between you know, the saints and, and the church militant today, but the church militant around the world. I mean, there are older Catholics who can, you know, the World War II generation Catholics, who can still remember um, how inspiring it was to go to Mass in a foreign country and have it be identical to the Mass that you would have gone to uh, you know, in your own neighborhood. That the Mass was the same wherever you went. I mean, today, <laughs> Novus Ordo, the experience is quite the contrary. I mean, you'd be lucky to find two Masses that are really the same, uh, even, even in the same parish, uh, on the same Sunday. Right? That, that universality and the, and the the Latin language that's used universally in the traditional Mass, uh, you know, is like a sign of, of, of the true Pentecost, wherein many tongues are brought together into one, rather than a, a new Babel that that not only is a confusion of languages, but actually privileges certain identities, certain ethnicities, certain nationalities, and, and obscures others. Right? That's that's clearly not. Uh, I mean, that's a, almost directly against the principle of St. Paul, that in the church there is neither Jew nor Greek, you know, enslaved or free, that all are the same in Christ Jesus, but not if they're fabricating liturgies for one group and or another. Number four, you know what you're getting. Uh, this, was, this was the number one reason that I <clears throat> started to attend the traditional masses, that there wouldn't be any surprises, that there wouldn't be any balloons or clowns or, or uh, you know, a campfire music or, or heresy. Right? You, just, you, you know what you're going to get. And, and to be sure, the traditional Mass can be misused, but, but the new Mass, although it, it most certainly can be reverently celebrated, and we're going to talk about that next week, ways that, um, that without spending a dime using a word of Latin or with any special training, this Sunday, the Mass at your parish could be vastly improved. And I will tell you how next week, because I think that's important. New Mass is not going away, so it does need to be um, as reverent as possible. Okay, but that's the thing. There, there isn't anything in the governing 
<clears throat> of the Novus Ordo Mise, that ensures the centrality of the celebration of the Paschal Mystery. In other words, it can be validly celebrated, but at the same time be celebrated in such a way that, that puts so much emphasis on community or, or sharing a meal or whatever, that it can uh, amount to a virtual denial of the Catholic understanding of the Mass. Number five, it's the real deal. It's a genuine article. And you can see it from the, the orientation of the priest um, and, and the, the prayers of the Missal. The orientation is theocentric. It's, it's Christocentric. It gives far greater emphasis on the mystery of the Holy Trinity, the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the sacrifice of the Lord on the cross. It, in, in a word, it's uh, more tangibly vertical than it is horizontal. Number six, we have the traditional calendar of saints. We were talking about saints before. And this is one of the uh, significant differences, what's called the sanctoral cycle. Um, you know, in the, in the traditional calendar, you have saints that are grouped together at certain times of year for, uh, you know, pedagogical reasons, because, because it, it helps to bring out the meaning of the, the season of the year that you're in and, and to accompany the liturgy. Um, but when the, the new Mass was created, they eliminated something like 200 saints from the calendar, including St. Valentine from St. Valentine's Day, and St. Christopher, because they said he wasn't historical, or St. Philomena, because they said she wasn't historical, St. Catherine of Alexandria, because she wasn't historical. Although St. Catherine of Alexandria appeared in a vision to St. Joan of Arc, so I guess maybe they're saying that St. Joan didn't really have mystical visions after all. And of course, uh, the archaeological evidence for St. Philomena has subsequently been discovered, and we know now that she was a real historical person. See, the problem is that they were following the, the, the intellectual uh, uh, fads of, you know, the, the modernist uh, uh, historians uh, rather than the ancient tradition of the church. Uh, it calls to mind what Chesterton said, uh, that he'd rather trust old wives' tales than old maids' facts. <laughs> All right. And finally, I guess we're running out of time here. Um, there's the calendar of the seasons also, that you don't have ordinary time but uh, continuations of, you know, the, the Sundays after Pentecost, the Sundays after Epiphany, and so on. Um, the scripture readings, the, the yearly cycle that helps you to inculcate um, the appropriate readings for the season. And then reverence for the Most Holy Eucharist, to receive only kneeling, only on the tongue, to have the host only be handled by the consecrated hand of the priests. And when all is said and done, really the mystery of faith. And we'll talk about that more next week. And like I say, next week, I'm going to share another list of things that any priest can do this Sunday to make their Novus Ordo more reverent and beautiful and transcendent. And that's no nonsense. I want to thank you for listening. Thanks for being with us this week. Uh, please pray for me. Pray for my daughter, Emily. Um, <clears throat> please support Virgin Most Powerful with your prayers and financially if you can. And until next time, I want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening. And may God richly bless you and your family.